Thanks, Bob, for helping. And thanks to all of you for your many, many prayers for me, as Rich mentioned in the uh, prayer. And I put out an email earlier this week, but if you didn't get the email, uh, you know, January of this year, I had a 1.8 centimeter tumor in my head and a, a lesion near my liver that were cancerous. And today I stand here and they're both gone. And uh, amen. And God has sustained me all these years uh, through prayers and modern medicine, the modern medicine as well, that doing wonders that, uh, yes, I mean, I was ready to go under in January last year to get a scalpel and get it cut out by my liver, and I'm glad that did not happen. <laughs> Again, thanks for your prayers. You know, I, uh, when I was sitting up here and we were singing that song, I did notice a few closet Pentecostals out there. Come on, it's just in you. It wants to come out when you clap, you know. You know, I, I grew up and, li and went to Pentecostal churches most of my life, and I hardly ever clapped or raised my hands. I just, I don't know. But the Bible says you can clap your hands, all you people. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph, right? So there's nothing wrong with clapping in church when we sing. So for you that did it, good. For others, you're just, you know, let it loose sometimes. All right, the title of my uh, sermon this morning is Identity Matters. Identity Matters. Scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. You can follow me. It's on the screen or in your Bibles. I'm going to read from my notes up here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time now where we open up your word. We ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would speak through these words that I have today to their hearts. Let it glorify God. Let it draw us closer to you. And Lord, perhaps open the heart of someone that is not born again, that they may see the true light of your gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you go to a typical college, or even maybe a, even our service academies today, and you meet with the, uh, the admissions people, they may give you some forms, they may talk to you, but you'll hear something today that many of us would not have heard uh, many years ago. They would say, how would you like to identify? And those over the age of 30 would probably look extremely puzzled. Those under 30, not so much. Because it's a relatively new idea, this idea of gender identity. You know, it actually, it's not that old. It started in the 60s, John Hopkins University. 
professor up there. Go, go look it up. A lot of things came out of the 60s, right? Gender identity is how you feel about yourself and the ways you express your gender and biological sex. Women's Health Magazine says there are 16 genders. If you look at a website called medicinenet.com, they said there are 72 genders. And the list is growing. And by the way, gender identity is not to be confused with sexuality, which refers to who you are emotionally, physically, romantically, or sexually attracted to. So gender is how you feel about yourself, while sexuality is about how you feel about others. And by the way, both can change on a given notice. You know, we also see a growing preoccupation with identity in the political realm. In fact, there's a word for it, right? Identity politics. Identity politics generally refers to a subset of politics in which groups of people with shared racial or religious or ethnic, social or cultural interests seek to promote their own specific interests or concerns. By the way, this also goes back to the 60s. So any of you that were in, you know, your teenage, the late 20s and 30s and the 60s, it's your generation's fault, you know, all this. <laughs> With this growing preoccupation over identity in our culture and in our politics, how should we as Christians look at identity? Does identity really matter? Well, I think identity matters because it's what makes me me and you you. It tells the story to the world about me and who I am and what I believe and, and more importantly, it leads to right, our behavior, our actions, many times are based on our identity, right? You choose to join the military, you give up many things because you are identifying with that service and you have to sacrifice things that you can't do because you're in the military, right? Because you identify with that particular branch of service. In the end, though, my identity is not so much based on what I feel about myself or that I construct in my mind, but it's based on who God says that I am because he created me. And the Bible says in Psalm 139, he formed me in my mother's womb. My very being which includes my identity, is dependent upon God in whom I live and move and have my being. Well, let's look at today's passage because it is instructive on how God looks at us as the church, as believers. Peter borrows a lot of terms from the Old Testament describing the identity of the church as believers. Let's look at them. I have three points in my sermon Number one, point number one, our identity before Christ, B.C. Number two, our identity in Christ. And then number three, our behavior, our actions in light of our new identity that's in Christ. But before we jump into the passage in the text, we need to know who is Peter addressing. Well, in chapter one of First Peter, it says that he writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. He is writing to Christian Jews and Gentiles, those that were saved, dispersed throughout what would be modern-day Turkey. And they are being persecuted at this time. You can see it throughout the whole letter. In a nutshell, the whole letter, Peter is comforting them with reminders of a solid hope for their salvation that they enjoy because of Christ's death and resurrection. But he also challenges them to maintain the highest standard of living as a witness to their persecutors. Point number one, our identity before Christ. Before Christ, it says they what? Lived in darkness. He said they were called out of darkness. Unbelievers walk in darkness. We see the metaphor darkness used throughout Scripture referring to our condition of sin and walking under the power of the God of this world, the devil. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is why we need to be rescued from the darkness. As Paul says in Colossians, Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness. Jesus came to lift us out of the darkness. Matthew describes this in his, early on in his gospel when he says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Thank God for the light of Jesus Christ shining in our hearts. Unbelievers walk in darkness. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the word. They may be able to explain it some and understand some stories, but they don't understand the overarching message of the gospel or they would turn to Christ. They would turn to the gospel. So they walk in darkness. You might even say they walk on the dark side of things. They don't realize it, of course. That is why we what? We need to let them see the light of Christ shining in our lives. Because when we're in darkness, trouble happens, right? I remember once when I was in middle school, and, and it was an evening, and uh, we're, I was actually at the middle school, and it was a basketball tournament or something we were playing, and I had to go to the bathroom. I go in the bathroom, and there's no windows and I'm coming out, and some friend of mine turns the light off. Complete pitch black darkness. Boom, ran right into a wall, chipped my tooth. Bad things happen when we're in complete and total darkness. The world, we look at things and wonder why things are happening in people's lives because they're walking in darkness, and they don't see the wall that's right in front of their faces. Sin blinds us to who God is, and it clouds our judgment above who we truly are. The problem is that we have too high of a view of ourselves. Apart from Jesus Christ or before Christ, as I'm talking about here, we feel autonomous and think we get to determine our identity, our world that's around it. The fact is we really don't truly understand ourselves and here's the second, or what is good for us. The Bible tells us what is good for us. It's God's word speaking 
to man to say, this is why I put these laws in place. Laws are good. I was having a conversation with my daughter there the other day. I was telling her things, Reagan, you shouldn't do that. Or say, Reagan, it wouldn't be better to do that. And, and she said, well, Dad, you know. And I told her the reason why I do things is because I love her. And if I see something that I don't think she should do, I'm doing it because it's best for her, in my opinion. Now, I make mistakes, right? She'll, she'll let me know that. But the same thing is the principle is with God's word. He gives us these words saying, thou shalt not, or whatever, for our own good. Well, the unbeliever, those before Christ, don't understand that. There is a correlation between our knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. John Calvin says it really well. Listen to this. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness found as folly and impurity. In other words, we have to look up to God. As we look into the face of Jesus, we look into the word, it sheds back to us a reality of who we are. For example, today, unbelievers don't sense that they are made in the image of God. If they did, we wouldn't have abortion. Because of their blindness, they have a distorted view of their image and what makes them so valuable. They don't feel valued or the love of God, so they construct identities or seek substitute gods, which they think will make them more lovable, more acceptable. But in the end, it only leads to despair. We have a lot of despairing, depressed people out there today, and everybody's saying it. You read the media, even mainstream media, there's a problem in our country today. Well, we have the light, the light of Christ, the hope of the gospel to give them. Second point. <clears throat> so the first point is we live in darkness. This is before Christ. Second point, and I'm going to actually, two and three, I'm going to mix, put them together because they kind of go together. We are not a people, and we have not received mercy. Interestingly, how they say it, the Greek word translated people is used in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, primarily referring to Israel. Peter is doing a play on words here with the uh, prophet of Hosea. So I'm going to turn, because <coughs> it's better for me to read it than try to talk. Hosea chapter 1. You're going to see these ideas where it came from, not my people, no mercy. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that very day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now here's where I want you to listen. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, 
for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or the sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. When she had waned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. But the next verse is what's telling, because it's kind of talking about the, the, the Christians of the New Testament. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So when you see that you are not my people and you are of no mercy, what he's really going back to is the prophecy back in Hosea. And so what he's trying to identify them was you guys walked in darkness. You weren't a people of God. You weren't part of the family of God. And you had no mercy. In fact, you were under the wrath of God. Paul says uh, something similar to this in Ephesians where he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So Peter is trying to tell these people, these new believers scattered throughout Asia, he says, you were once not a people. Now, they would say, well, yeah, I'm from Bithynia, or, you know, I'm from Cappadocia. Now, he's talking about a people of God. You were once not part of God's family. You weren't chosen in the sense of a nation like Israel, and we'll get to that here. Apart from Christ, there is no mercy. All right. Let's talk about the second point, our identity in Christ, our identity in in Christ. What is our true identity? Well, the first distinguisher or way he, he talks about it, he says, you are a chosen race. First off, we were chosen by God. The Greek word is the word elect. You know, next month, well, a little over a month, we'll be going to elect representatives and governors and across the land, right? We choose. That's the same word where we get election from. He says, you are a chosen race. We are chosen by God, and it's based on nothing we do or have done or will do, but only by his pleasure. Paul says it well in Ephesians chapter 1, very similar. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. We like to get picked. Don't you like to get picked? Remember when you were a kid in elementary school and you had to pick teams for kickball or dodgeball, right? You always wanted to be a captain, so you wouldn't be the last one picked, right? But, but didn't it feel good when, you know, the captain gets up there and he says, I want Bill, first one. And you're like, you feel like important, right? Because you were picked. Folks, we should feel important because we were picked by God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he caused you to be born again to his living hope. You are picked, and he called you out. You're part of a chosen race. My identity starts with the fact that I was picked by God through the blood of Jesus Christ by the work 
of the Holy Spirit. And again, by the way, we are not only chosen individually, but we are part of the chosen race, the chosen generation. This idea also corresponds back with the Old Testament. Peter was probably drawing from this as he writes him. Deuteronomy 10, 15 says, Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. He chose the nation of Israel, right? Above all peoples. And if you read, did he choose them because they were better? Did he choose them because they were a larger group? He just chose them because he did. And we, you know, we may not understand why. That's why the doctrine of election, a lot of people struggle with it, but there are things above our pay grade that we don't understand. We just have to leave it to the sovereign pleasure and mercy of God. Clearly, there is continuity here in Peter's writings between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The second descriptor he uses, you are a royal priesthood. Man, hadn't the royal family been in the news of late, right? Passing of the queen. I looked it up. You know, the top 10 most viewed events in world history, three or four of them have to do with the royal family. Lady, uh, uh, when Princess Diana and, uh, was married, that was like over a billion people watched it. There's only a couple, there's a couple of World Cup events and a couple of Muhammad Ali fights in there, but like three or four of them were world events. People were enthralled with royalty, Right? Well, as followers of Christ, he's Peter saying here, you are royalty. You're a part of a royal priesthood. You've been designated to serve the living God, the living king, and to serve one another. And I made you part of that royal family. And again, this gets back to the New Test Old Testament as well. Uh, Exodus 19.6 says, God's talking to the nation of Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. By the way, as you notice in this description and all other description, we are identified as part of a group. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You know, people in the end want to belong to a group. God created us with a sense of belonging and a need for to be in groups. Think about it. He's the Trinity. For all things, there was the Son, the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is not about the Lone Ranger in Tonto. He is about us being involved in a group, in a family some way. And so he's telling them there, you scattered believers all throughout Asia, you come together as one, as family of God. It's a beautiful thing, right? Have you ever been visited another church far away land? You know, been overseas especially, and you different culture, and you're going to a worship service, and there's something... You know, you identify, right? Hey, man, we're family. It's because of the love of God and Jesus Christ. People get together for good things and bad things in groups as well, right? We see uh, 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 gangs in Antifa. They gather together in groups. They want to be part of something, and they do bad things. Well, we're to get together as groups, as a church of the living Christ, and do good things. By the way, here's the strongest identities we have, and you'll see this in the political world and what's going on today. The strongest identities we have are shaped by the strongest communities we belong to, because it's who you hang out with. 
you have similar goals, similar uh, ambitions, right? Well, we're to be about the work of God's kingdom. We're priests called to be a royal priesthood. By the way, it's a, you know, identity. Let's talk about, you know, in the old days, you know, as a guy, especially, where did you get most of your identity from? Your occupation. You would say, first thing, you go on an airplane, right? You would, you're talking to someone, and you want to find out, oh, who's your family? Oh, you know, I'm married. I have three kids. Where are you from, right, right? And then what's the next question? Well, what do you do? Because identity is tied so much up in our occupations. Well, our identity here should be tied up in the royal priesthood of God. All right, let's move on. You are a holy nation. This corresponds to Deuteronomy 7, 6, where it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Holy means to be set apart, right? We see that word a lot in the Bible, to be holy, to be set apart, to be different. We are set apart as a nation. By the way, this is not a justification for Christian nationalism. All right? You see some things out there in your readings about Christian nationalism where they try to inextricably link Christianity with the nation, the particular nation. If that would have been the case, you know, all those different nations that were represented there, Peter would have said, you know, in your government and everything, it's got to be your constitution. Everything's got to be tied with the Bible. He's not saying that. All right. He's saying you are a people drawn together. You are the church. Now, we as Christians should affect our nation, right? We should be involved in politics. We should be involved in being salt and being light, making a difference, bringing the light of the gospel of the darkness into the public arena. But we got to be careful. There's some stuff out there going today about tr trying to tie those two things together. You are people for his own possession. Again, this goes back with uh, back to the you were not a people, now you are a people. All right. <clears throat> the final describer of our identity is we are sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. This word exile... <clears throat> just means someone that is traveling in a foreign land, right? We know this is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Now, we live here, but we're temporarily here. When I was in the Air Force, I got stationed in Germany, right? I was a U.S. citizen, but I lived in Germany. Was I concerned about things in Germany around me? Well, yeah, some things. You know, I wanted to be safe and secure and Wanted to enjoy their good, uh, you, you know, schnitzel and all that stuff like that. But I wasn't involved too heavily, you know, what's going on in their whole world because I knew I was just passing through. I wasn't a citizen of Germany, right? And that's the same idea as we are going on to heaven as pilgrim's progress, you know, as he's ever moving forward to that heavenly city. Peter is saying the same thing here because they're all being persecuted, by the way. And he's saying, all right, guys, you're going through a lot of difficulty here now under these Roman empires. But recognize, you, this is temporary. You are moving on. One day you will be in the eternal city. You see these same words of, used in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. It says, these all died in faith. It was talking about Sarah and Abraham. Not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar off, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, it says, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. All right, I gave you a bunch of descriptions there about how God sees us, our identity in Christ, how we should look at ourselves corporately as a church. Now let's look at a few instructions. How should we live? He provides a lot. By the way, if you read the book, 1 Peter, and I know the ladies are going through that, there are so much in there, so many instructions of how to live. I'm just going to briefly go over these here. Number one, we need to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. The word excellency was also translated the praises of Christ, the virtues of Christ, the moral goodness of Christ. We are to proclaim the preeminence of Christ over all things, as it says in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. In him all things hold together. In him all the fullness of God dwells. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. As priests, we are to declare it to the world, his truth. That is the great commission. You might not be a full-time pastor. You might not be a missionary or evangelist, but you are called to bring God's truth to light where you live. People need good news, by the way. Our culture needs it today. Speak God's truth to whoever will listen. But recognize, as we see here, you won't go unimpeded in declaring his truth, his moral excellence. Swords have been drawn or drawn and will be drawn against God's truth until that final day that Christ comes back to vanquish evil and consummate his kingdom. We are living in a time now uh, in our culture when Christian truth no longer enjoys the broad cultural consensus that it did for many of the years. Many of the truths that we believed in the past have been upended, especially those in regards to human sexuality. But when speaking the truth in these areas with people, we must do it with a gentle spirit in hopes of persuading them. Arguing doesn't work, especially in our current climate. We must be gentle, but we must not back down. Do not back down on the truth of God's word. No matter how hard, ask the Lord for strength and help. In fact, that's why we come together church each week to strengthen one another, encourage one another so we go back out in that world. And we don't need to back down when it comes to God's truth on the matters of marriage and sexuality and the family, which are hot topic buttons today. Speaking of sexuality, let's go to the second point. How then shall we live? We need to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against them, against the soul. There's a battle in our soul, right? The flesh, the spirit. Paul talked about it. Now, if you were in Sunday school class today, Dave hit that point hard about the passions of the flesh. They're there. We, we live in a world where, where we have to deal uh, with those passions. And uh, Peter describes those passions later in the book. In chapter 4, he says, telling them to no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality or passions or drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. He's telling these people, he says, you guys are new believers in Christ now. You, need to, you have a new identity. You need a new lifestyle. You should be different. Don't be like the Gentiles anymore. 
You aren't one of them. Live for Christ, right? By the way, what they were facing then and what we face today are very similar. Uh, the Roman Empire at that time was going through severe degradation due to immorality and materialism. In his, in his book, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity, Cal Harper noted that the sexual morality quickly came to mark the great divide between Christians and the rest of the Roman world. As time went on, the sexual ethic is what separated Christians from the world. And I think you're going to start to see that now in our country. Do you stand for what the Bible says about human sexuality? Do you stand for what the Bible says is immoral? It's going to be a big distinguisher. Some of you have read it in the Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He says that sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. In other words, you're seeing that today, it's all about sex. Sexuality is who you are, you know, the authenticity of it. That's why we're dealing with it so much in our culture. But we are to abstain from fleshly lusts, as the Bible says. We are to flee youthful lusts, as uh, Paul told Timothy. You can't get away from it. I mean, it's out there, right? But as Martin Luther famously said, you know, you can't keep a flock of birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest on your head, right? In the same way, there are situations we can put ourselves in to, uh, that aren't good and useful and helpful, but there are things we can do as best we can to deal with this situation. We are to live holy and pure lives. It's not easy but God will help us. That's the sanctification process. That's when we you hear the word in the Bible, that big word, sanctification, being set apart. We were sanctified, set apart by the work of Christ. We're holy. When he looks at us today, he sees us holy. But as we walk in this life today until that one day he returns, we are to be growing each day, becoming more and more holy. All right, the third thing there, third point of our conduct. It says, keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. When he's talking about Gentiles, talking about unbelievers. Uh, do good deeds is what he's basically saying. Do good works toward the unbeliever, those who differ with us. You will see the words do good numerous times in this epistle. Our lives are to be filled with good works. Honorable conduct is connected to good deeds. And if you think about Peter, it seems to be borrowing words from Jesus, right, at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And, but also notice that Peter says they will speak of us as evildoers, but will glorify God on the day of visitation for your works. We should be expected to be ridiculed and persecuted now for standing the truth. Uh, we are now being, being, as a Christian, if you stand for, especially when it comes to the, the sexual ethic preached in the Bible, we are being considered evil doers by pop culture. Uh, we just were lucky for many, many years. And even though it wasn't practice, they weren't any better back then, but it was not as acceptable as it is 
today. But you know, we need to still rely upon Christ. Jesus' word said in the Gospel of John, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, now listen to this, but I chose, there's that word again, chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In closing, let me wrap this up. Identity does matter. If you are a believer in Christ, he has called you, he's called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Bible says he has shown you and shown me mercy. He has given you and me a new identity. We are part of the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. We are part of people for his own possession. And with that in mind, we need to now go and live accordingly to this wonderful identity that we have. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have uh, called us out of darkness into light. We thank you that you have called us your people and that you have made us holy and separate by the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there is someone here today that is walking in darkness and needs to be in the light, pluck them out and set them apart for your holy nation. Father, I pray that you would encourage us and help us to remind ourselves every day of the mercy that you show to us and give us the strength we need, Lord, to live in this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.